So First Baptist Church uh, just started a prison ministry. And Calvary Baptist Church just started a food ministry. And old, old Providence Baptist Church just started a ministry to bikers. And New Providence Baptist Church just started a clothing ministry. And, and just down the road, there was a second Baptist church that started a youth ministry. Okay, you get the point. Obviously, I'm not talking about real churches and real ministries. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this, how in churches, just about everything we do, we just call it a ministry and move on with our day. You know, we, we could go and we could work on the gardens or the, the flower beds at the church. And we'd say we had a flower bed ministry. You know, we could have a cleaning crew that helps up after events and we call them the cleaning ministry or the, the clean up ministry or the everybody help, we need help, please ministry or something like that. But as we look at that and we think about that word ministry, it's really not just a term for everything we do in the church. And when we look at the New Testament, that word minister is interesting because it's tied to service. This is part of the reason that I say occasionally that every member at our church is both a missionary and a minister. And by that I mean that every member in our church should be a missionary. They should be sent to preach the gospel and to reach lost people in their homes. I mean, that's a wonderful place to make disciples. Everyone's called to make disciples. The home is the the beginning of that. But also in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in the schools, in our communities. If you are coaching your kid's softball team, you are a missionary to that kid's team. But also, we're ministers. And what I mean by that isn't maybe what you traditionally think of when you think of the word minister. I know growing up, when I attended church, the person that I would have called the pastor, the lead pastor, the senior pastor, he didn't like that term, so he went by minister. So in our bulletins, his title was always minister. And what really we meant by that was pastor, the guy leading the church, or the several guys leading the church. Or if one guy was leading the church and one guy was leading the youth ministry, he was a youth minister. But that's not necessarily how the Bible uses the word minister. That's a fine use of it, but it kind of gives us this idea that ministers are these people above us and and we're, we're not ministers. But in Scripture, that word minister just means servant. Many times, not always, but many times the word that we translate minister in the New Testament is from the same word that we get deacon, which means not just servant, but literally like a waiter of tables. So the imagery we get in Scripture is that ministry or ministering is not just something done by a select few. It's done by every Christian. And where do we see what ministry really looks like? Well, first and foremost, a very good place to start is the classic Sunday school answer with Jesus. And so this morning we look at Matthew chapter 4, and we look at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now last week I just ended the service just for a little bit of fun. I said the title of next week's sermon is going to be The Blank of Jesus. If you can figure out what the blank is, I'll give you a prize. Now the problem is I didn't have a prize in mind at the time, so I'm still working on that part. But I got a one person who came up to me after the business meeting and guessed it correctly, which was Alicia Dill. And then I had one person text me uh, maybe a day or two later, and that was Raymond Barnhart. And they both got it right. The ministry of Jesus was the title of the sermon. Why? Because we're focused on what ministry looks like according to Jesus. And so when we look at his life, uh, we need to be reminded here in verse 12 what was happening before. It says in verse 12, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, he had just been baptized by John. He had just spent, after that, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, which is what we talked about last week. And now Jesus withdraws into Galilee 
once he hears that John had been arrested. And he leaves Nazareth, and he goes and lives in Capernaum. This becomes kind of Jesus' home base for the rest of his ministry. And it's in this territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this begins uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which lasts for quite a bit of the Gospel of Matthew. And it says that here it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah what uh, was fulfilled in this. And it's that he was going to go to this place. And it says in verse 16, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and, and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that's not just true uh, of that time. That's true of us today. The people dwelling in darkness, the people who are living in the shadow of death, to us a light has dawned. We hear of Jesus Christ. Now it's important that Jesus fulfills the prophecies about himself because without fulfilling them, we wouldn't know clearly that he is the one who can proclaim new things to us. Unlike uh, the prophets of his, uh, uh, or the teachers of his day, he can proclaim new things, new insights into the word of God that no one else could. This amazed the people as they heard him teach. And today, the goal of, of ministers, of preachers, of pastors, is not to preach some new insight. It's to be faithful to the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. It's to be faithful to what we were told to teach. In Matthew 28, he tells the disciples, and thereby the church, he says that we are to go make disciples, baptizing them. But then he says this, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Those are some of the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. He doesn't say, now go and follow my example of teaching new things, which everything Jesus taught that was new was still in continuity with what came before. God didn't just change his mind or something about the whole project. But we are to teach in line with what Jesus taught. We are to be faithful to Jesus' teaching. And, and it's a good point for all of us. That as we, uh, as we hear preachers or teachers, especially of God's word, preaching and teaching new things, new insights, uh, we might just need to pause and say, is that right? Because it may very well not be. So he goes and he begins his ministry. What does his ministry look like? Well, the first thing we see, because we need Jesus' ministry. That's what's at root here. We all need, right now, you and I, Jesus' ministry. And we need First of all, his message. In verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach. It's worth noting that Jesus was a preacher. You know, they've done surveys, actually, of people's opinions on preachers and pastors in the United States and in the UK and things like that. And, and, and I don't know if you know this, but nowadays, people don't really trust preachers. Uh, it's kind of an awkward thing. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of trust. And, and in fact, a lot of people uh, distrust preachers. It's not just a lack of trust. It's an act of not trusting. I'll, I'll tell you a quick thing, not to get into controversy. But if you all remember, there was, there was some time where um, there was uh, what was called a drag queen story hour in which people were going and reading books at libraries. Well, I knew of a pastor who went, and uh, his response to that was he was going to have pastor story hour. And he went as a pastor to read to kids. Now, when he promoted this, you can imagine the comments from some people. 
which we're saying, well, that's even worse. Or our kids are way less safe with this pastor. Uh, we live in a day and age in which it's not an honorable and respectable thing to be a pastor or a preacher or a minister. You're looked on as someone who might be an abuser. You're looked on as someone who might be uh, in it for their own gain. And we all have to be honest, just for a moment, as Christians, that there are those among us who have been exactly those things. And we also have to admit that there are people that we allowed places of power who were wolves in sheep's clothing. And we put them in the positions where they were able to abuse. We put them in the positions where they were able to be greedy for selfish gain. And so that's something that we all need to repent of, is any participation we may have had in those things, or our churches may have had. But with that being said, it's an unfortunate part of our society that that is the case. Because for those handful, and it's a group, but a handful of people who are problems, there are many who are not. There are many faithful pastors across our country who are just that, faithful, humble, quiet. <laughs> that word quiet is sometimes pretty key. But these men are faithful, and it's a shame that in our culture they may be seen as less than that. I remember going to Ghana. It was the first time I'd ever been out of the country, and, and if we had time, I'd really like to tell you some stories because it was a pretty interesting time to be out of the country. But I remember when we had gone to a funeral one morning, and we were in the hometown of the pastor we were working with in the city. I kid you not, this man, it was, I mean, it was, you almost think it was like when Jesus was walking the earth. I mean, he would walk through this town, and every single person would stop, and they would come up, and they would, now this was a part of their cultural practice, it wasn't worshiping him, they would bow their head, you know, and shake his hand, and, and, and at the very least, they would say, hello, you know, pastor, or whatever, from a distance, at the very least, but many of them would run to him to come and greet him, and it was just, it just blew my mind, because that is not how pastors are treated in America. There is a respect there that doesn't exist. Now, I say all this not to say that I need more respect from you all. I really could care less about that. But, or couldn't care less. I always make that mistake. But what, the reason I bring all this up is to say that there are maybe 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 50-year-olds, or even older who may be called to preach. And you need to remember in a world in which you're told not to preach, Many, church, many Christians who attend church will tell you, you probably shouldn't go preach, uh, because that's hard, you're going to be treated poorly, you're not going to be able to provide for your family, whatever it is. And there are many non-Christians who will look down on you for preaching. I think it's important that we see first and foremost, what Jesus did at the start of his ministry was he began to preach. Preaching isn't some new fad, and it's not some old thing that passes away, it's a thing that Jesus did and we ought to continue to do. But what was his message as he began to preach? Well, let's start with, with the main core of it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He uses this term, the kingdom. Now, we know that what Jesus was preaching at the end of the day is what we call gospel today. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it tells the same story, but it emphasizes they began to preach the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, as he talks about this good news of this kingdom that is coming, we need to understand what this kingdom is. Jesus was using language that the people would have recognized. 
It's a kingdom. It's, it's a place, and it's also power. When we hear of the kingdom in the book of Matthew or in the other gospels, we're hearing of a place where people can enter, where they sit and they dine and they eat and they drink together. But it's also a place where some people are removed. It's also a place where some people are not allowed to enter. It's the presence of God is the kingdom that he's talking about because it's the kingdom of heaven. And as this kingdom comes, it's not just a a place, a, a, a presence that we enter into. It's also power. When, we don't see it in English, but that word kingdom can be a verb if you just change the, a letter or two, and it becomes a verb. And all of a sudden, it's not kingdom, but it's rule, or it's reign, or, or it's some kind of verb for what God does. So this kingdom is both a place, God's presence, and it's his power, his sovereignty, his rule, his reign over all things, but especially over the church. This is something that we need to get right as Christians. God is king, not just over your life. He's not just Lord of your life. Is he that? Yes. But guess what? You have an unbeliever who's a cousin. You have an unbeliever who's a neighbor. You have an unbeliever at work that you know. God's king of their life. He's Lord of their life. Now, they are not recognizing him as king. That's the key difference. They have not responded to his kingdom. But he's still king of their life. He's king over the whole world. He created the thing. But he's specially king over his church. People who recognize his rule and his reign. So Jesus is preaching this kingdom. There is a new way of reality being. Where God is fully in charge and we recognize it. But it's the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven is also important here. Now, on the one hand, of heaven is just a placeholder for God's name. Now, you may have heard of the kingdom of God. That's used in other Gospels. But when we say kingdom of heaven, really what uh, Matthew is just doing is he's being kind and polite to some of his Jewish readers. I don't know if you know this. There's a commandment in the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Well, there were Jewish people who didn't see that as cursing or swearing or anything like that. What they saw that as was literally using the name of God, Yahweh, or I am who I am, using that name at all. Some of them just in certain context, but some of them at all, in normal day speech, not use his name. When you go to the Old Testament and you read in all uppercase Lord, it says Lord, it talks about the Lord, he's the Lord of Lords and all that. That word is a a fill-in for Yahweh. Because of the respect they were trying to show God's name. And so when he says kingdom of heaven, he is being respectful to some of his Jewish audience, not to say kingdom of God. Heaven is the realm of God. So kingdom of heaven is appropriate. It also keys us into the fact that this kingdom is not of this world. It is a kingdom that is coming from far away. Far away from our sin far away from our selfishness, far away from the evils we face and the sufferings we face. It is a kingdom of heaven, kingdom from God. This is the message Jesus preaches. The kingdom is coming. Now, what he doesn't say here, but what is explicit in other parts of Scripture, is that he is the king. That Jesus is the king. Now, how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, he puts it at the front, doesn't he? Repent. 
repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that word repent has a lot of connotations in our culture, some of them very negative. But that word repent is really about reorienting yourself, about changing your direction, changing your perspective. Literally, it means change your mind. So when we say repent, what we're really saying is turn around. Stop looking that way. Stop heading that direction. Reorient yourself around Jesus. See, that's the thing here is repentance isn't like some bad word. It's not a word that's trying to get you to think you're a bad person inherently. It doesn't even, notice he doesn't even say what to repent from. He doesn't say here, repent from sin. Repent from not keeping your room clean or something like that. He just says repent. As one person put it, whatever keeps you from turning toward the coming kingdom is that from which one should turn. Whatever it is, oh, it might be a sin. It might be your selfishness. It might be a good thing that you are just too focused on. Some people may need to repent of good things because they are focused more on them than on God's kingdom. You, you may have to repent from your work. You may even have to repent, and this is crazy to say in a Baptist church of all places, from your family. That your family life is absorbing too much of your attention. Now, I'm not saying anything about being a lazy person and not working. I'm not saying anything about being negligent of your family. But we need to be very aware that even good things, when they take the place of God in our lives are the things that we need to repent from. Now, it's not just Jesus' message we need. It's also his discipleship. Let's look at this story. Uh, I'll just read it again. Of Jesus calling the first disciples. He says, in verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. We need to notice that Jesus made disciples. Jesus just didn't go around and preach a message and hope people would respond to it. He was preaching to make disciples. And the goal of our preaching, one from a pulpit, but also in your daily life as you try to tell people the good news of Jesus, the goal shouldn't be that they say a prayer where they repent and you move on with your life. And they move on with their life. The goal of preaching, the goal of this message, is that disciples would be made. That's the whole point, actually. So we need Jesus' discipleship, and we need to go and make disciples ourselves. Jesus goes to these two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Of course, you probably all, if you've been in church very long, have heard of Peter. Uh, we could say a lot about Peter, but we won't. And we know a little less about his brother Andrew, except that these brothers were at one time followers of John the Baptist. 
It says that in the book of John, actually. It talks about how they were um, listening to John and hearing of his preaching, and that's kind of what led them to then look to Jesus. But they were also fishermen, as were James and John, who were also brothers. It's interesting that Jesus here calls two sets of brothers. And ironically, what's going to happen is, because of their relationship with Jesus, even those who are not related among those four will become brothers. So that instead of having one brother each, they'll each have three. And it's just an amazing thing that God does this through making disciples. Now, what's he, what does he say to them? He says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me is the call of a rabbi, of a teacher. The call of a rabbi to a student, to a disciple. That's what disciple kind of means, student, follower. And he is inviting them into a meaningful relationship. So when you think of a student today, I know what you think of. I know what you think of because it's not dissimilar to what I think of, which is you all remember going to a classroom and there was a chalkboard. Um, Eventually, my chalkboards got replaced with dry erase boards, but you get the point. There was a board and there were desks that had chairs attached to them, which are either genius inventions or the silliest things, depending on your opinion, I guess. And you would get in these desks and you would listen to a teacher. And your job was to take notes, ask questions, and pass exams. And that was your life as a student, basically. But when Jesus invites these people to be students of his, to be disciples of his, he's not inviting them to that. Yes, they're going to get an education. But they're going to spend every waking hour, basically, with very few exceptions with this man. They're going to follow him and watch as he lives his life. When you become a student of a rabbi like this, when you become their disciple, you get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it's worth noting the high esteem these disciples held Jesus in after his resurrection. The fact that they couldn't see a sin committed. And they spent their lives with him. The the, the entirety of their lives almost. With him. And so we see this call to follow him is much more than a call to take some notes in a classroom. It's far more than a call to listen to someone write some, uh, talk and write things on a board. It is a call to spend your life following the teachings and the example of this person. And so when the disciples are called to follow Jesus, they are called into something very intimate and very meaningful. And listen, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are called into something very meaningful and very intimate. You are called to more than coming on Sunday and hearing a preacher talk about the Bible. Now, are you called to less than that? I don't think so. But are you called to more than that? Far more. You are called to have an intimate, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are called to spend as much of your time as you can manage in the presence of the Lord. Not just in a church building, but in the presence of the Lord, with the scriptures open, with your voice in prayer and singing and praise. You are called to so much more than a decision. You are called to so much more than attendance at a church. You're not called to less than those things, but much more. Not only that, but the pattern in our churches, if we're going to make disciples, needs to follow the pattern of Jesus. Many of us are far too happy, I think, 
And I'm thinking of someone who is trying to think about, I, this is a side note, I have many friends about my age who are moving across the country for work or for school, and they're all finding new churches. And, you know, as the guy who attends church, I guess it's my job, but they're all pretty, pretty solid guys and, and women, and they would be finding a church whether I was saying, hey, have you found a church yet or not? But I ask them what they look for in a church. And if you are going to reach my generation and the one beneath me, discipleship can't look like hosting a class at church once a week and hoping they show up. It just can't. Now, can it include that? Maybe. But all the ones I know, they want in discipleship something more. They don't want you an hour lecturing at them. They want to go with you as you do ministry. They want to go with you while you go to the hospital and visit a sick person. They want to go with you as you comfort a grieving family. They want to be in your home as you discipline your kids and as you may have to apologize to your kids for something that you did to sin against them. They want to see your life and see that you're a genuine follower of Jesus who is trying their best. That's what they want. That word with is very key in all that. Jesus invites his disciples to be with him. And so we need to be inviting people to be with us. And we so easily, listen, this is, this is probably my least favorite thing about being Southern Baptist. And I've got five or four. But this is probably my least favorite thing, is because the tradition we have in our, in our denomination is so programmatic. I don't know if you realize this. Some of it was good, to be clear. I'm not against all of it. But there's an entire generation where most Southern Baptist churches operated off of programs. They got a program from Lifeway, which at one time was called the Sunday School Board, and they would get their curriculum, and they would get their materials. And listen, the curriculum and material stuff can be good. But they would run programs just based on whatever Lifeway had. Instead of looking at their community and doing two things, saying, what do the people in our neighborhood actually need? Not just what this board is telling us they need. But also instead of saying, I'm just going to give my life to these people. There is a, and, and, and you know, the reason we do this, I don't know if you all recognize this. The reason we do a lot of the things we do in church is because it's far easier than doing the other things. It is far easier to run a program that you show up for and that you spend the majority of your time preparing for alone or with a small group of people you're already friends with. Because you put together the little bags that you're going to give them and you put together the prizes and the treats and the pr whatever it is. And you spend very little time actually with people who need you to spend a lot of time with them. I mean, if you think about it as well, when we do the whole program thing, we're inviting people to an hour a week, at most usually, on average. An hour a week. Now, again, I'm not against some of that stuff. But wouldn't it be far more meaningful, far more impactful to just spend life with these people? Invite them when you go on a, when you have to take a trip an hour or two away and they can ride in the car with you and see you go do ministry? It, when, when you need to go to the hospital and you just bring along someone that you're discipling. We need to base our discipling practices. You know, I've told you my goal is for us to be a more biblical church. I think we need to base our discipling practices far less off of best-selling books and far more off the biblical pattern that Jesus gives us. And that's not to say we don't have a program for an hour once a week. 
That's not to say we don't do Sunday school. It is to say that if those are the only things we do, we're not going to reach a generation that actually wants to do this. We're not going to reach a generation that actually wants to spend time with real Christians. And I don't mean time as in a lunch once every three months. I mean, you can't have... Some of you know this because when your kids, had, uh, when you're, when your kids were young and still in the house, maybe some of you were the parents that constantly had people in your house. You were constantly feeding them. Um, I remember my, my grandmother was a school teacher. She had three boys. My mother was the youngest of these four boys. And that meant they, they, they were eaten out of house and home constantly. Not because of the three sons on their own, but because the three sons always had the football guys over or the basketball guys over or the baseball guys over. They were constantly, and their house was, I've been to the old house they lived in. It was so close to the school. These kids would literally just come to the house and hang out for an hour or two and eat a bunch of their food and then go home. Now listen, you might think, well, I don't know about groceries these days, whether I want to do that. Well, you need to reprioritize, perhaps, because that's exactly the kind of cultures that we need to be creating in our homes. It's very difficult. I'm not good at it, so don't, don't ask me. I will, if you are interested in seeing good examples of this, I can give you a list in our church. It's a small list, but I'll give you a list of people who are very good at this, and you can figure out how they do it. But that's the kind of ministry we need to be doing, inviting people into our lives and doing the best we can. I'm running out of time, so let's continue. Now, he says, follow me. And then he says this, I will make you fishers of men. Now what's interesting is two things we learn from this. One, Jesus uses the thing they know in order to reach them. He tells them he's going to make them fishers of men. Why? Can anyone guess? Because they were fishermen. So he comes to them with the thing they know. Perhaps if he was going to a school teacher, he'd say, I'll make you a teacher of the best news to people. Maybe he would say to a construction worker, follow me and I will make you a builder of men or a builder of churches. Maybe he would say to a lawyer, follow me and I will make you a defender of the faith to the lost world. Maybe he'd say to a nurse, follow me and I will make you a healer of souls. I don't know. But he comes to them with what they know. And he says he'll make them fishers of men. When Jesus makes a disciple... When he calls a man or a woman, he calls them to be fishers of men. Always. That's why this gospel ends saying, go and make disciples. When Jesus calls you, he already has in mind those that will become believers through you. So the question isn't whether... I'm called to be a missionary, whether I'm called to make disciples. The question is, where am I called and to whom am I called? That's the question. That's the key. And if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not called to make disciples, or I'm, I don't feel that in my entire life I've made a disciple, one, maybe, maybe stretch out the scorecard and think of the ways you've contributed to it. And then also ask yourself, am I around lost people that I can be witnessing to? And if you're not, that tells you a whole lot in and of itself, doesn't it? So what, what do we see here? What makes disciples? Jesus' word makes disciples. He says, follow me. How do we make disciples today? By saying Jesus' word. And what are we to do when we hear Jesus' word? We are to do what it say, says. 
This is why a commitment to the ordinary, regular, weekly practice of coming to church and hearing the Bible opened, hearing it read, and hearing it preached is so important. Not because Chandler or any other pastor has anything particularly interesting to say. I don't know about you. I can watch uh, talks online that are amazing, and then I can go to church and be like, this guy is, does not have the time that those people have, at least. You shouldn't go to church because you have an impressive preacher. What you should go to church for is to hear God's word, and there's a difference. There's a vast difference. I've heard plenty of good preachers, in one sense of the word, who I don't know that the Spirit ever showed up for their preaching. The importance isn't the words that I say. The importance is the word that is read and explained and applied and proclaimed. And where my words don't match up with it, I hope you'll all just forget it. Which hopefully isn't too often, but we'll see what happens. So we need to be committed to the regular practice of hearing God's word, hearing the words of Jesus. Because not only do we need to make disciples of lost people, but everyone in this room, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, needs to be a disciple of Jesus, which means you need to be growing in your discipleship by Jesus. And that means you need to be continually hearing the word. And that needs to be something you do in your own lives, but that also needs, uh, is something you need to do when you come to church. Okay, let's wrap up with this. The last thing we need from Jesus. Not only do we need his message, not only do we need his discipleship we also need his healing so we see this last section here and he went throughout all galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people notice first that he's teaching in the synagogues now the synagogues were not the temple they didn't perform sacrifices there but they did come around they did read from the the bible the old testament specifically the torah and they did talk about it they did hear teaching on it so Jesus is going to these official places of learning to teach. There's many ways in which the New Testament church was modeled off the synagogue. So he teaches in the synagogues, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. So, so he's not just teaching, not just giving them ways to live and ways to follow the Torah, but he's proclaiming to them the way of the kingdom. And this is so important because we don't need to be just teaching people in order for them to understand something so they can make some verbal confession. We need to be proclaiming the kingdom to them so they can enter into a new way of life. It is so important that the end of our discipleship is not a decision. The end of our discipleship is death. What do I mean by that? I mean that the goalpost for being a Christian is not conversion. I, I use this analogy sometimes. Conversion is not running into the end zone. This is a football analogy, so if you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's not running into the end zone when the clock is running down and winning the game. Conversion is putting the jersey on and getting on the field in the first place. Conversion, your decision to follow Jesus, is the beginning of you actually beginning to play the game that is this Christian life, this life in the kingdom. So what is the end? The end is when one of two things happens. Either you are dead and a pastor can preach at your funeral that this person knew Jesus, that this person became more like Jesus every day that I knew them, and that they wanted to make Jesus known, or Jesus' return. That's, that's the end game. 
What is the end goal of discipleship? That when people remember you, when you're dead and gone, that they don't just say, he was such a nice person, or she was so kind to me. But they can say, this was someone who was in love with Jesus Christ. And that every day I knew them, they were becoming more like Christ. And lest you think that you cannot become more like Christ at 65 than you did at 15, well, you're just not understanding what it is to love and grow in relationship and knowledge of God. So he teaches and he proclaims and he heals every disease and affliction. And then it says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, throughout all that region, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. He healed not only those who had a sickness or, or those who had a disease, but he healed those that were afflicted by demons. At the word of Jesus, demons ran out. At the word of Jesus, disciples were made, not just because they got rid of their sniffles, but because Satan and his minions were cast out of them. That is what can happen at the word of Jesus. And it says, great crowds, in verse 25, followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. These great crowds were following him all across the place. Now, as we eventually get to the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see whether they can hear his preaching and his teaching and continue to follow him. Because it's not certain that all of these people will. But it is to say that they needed the healing of Jesus And so do we. Jesus' healing of bodily afflictions and his casting out of demons is a type, is a foreshadowing of the kind of healing he brings to us today. Listen, the greatest need you have, the greatest need anyone in this world has, is not to be healed from from a particular sickness or disease. Now, is it important to do that? It would be great. And we, we should pray. If our ministries are to look like Jesus, we should be praying for healing in people's lives, for physical healing. But, is that the greatest need anyone has? Of course not. The greatest need anyone has is for their soul to be healed from being in rebellion against God to repent and follow Jesus Christ. That is the most important healing we need. And we can debate time and time again exactly how and in what ways and in what measure God brings healing to people today. But what we cannot debate is the greatest miracle of healing that exists, which is the redemption of a person's soul. That is not in question. God is obviously continually at work doing that. And so we ought to pray Not only that we would grow in discipleship as disciples of him, that we would hear his message again and again and continually repent, but that we would be continually healed from the affliction that is upon us. Our sin and our selfishness, those things that keep us in rebellion against God. Let's pray.